Well, to all of our campuses at the Summit Church this morning, I want to say just a personal word of thanks and commendation for uh, the service that you gave uh, during our Serve RDU week. Uh, you have uh, been told, you probably heard this a number of times, but this week for us is not um, a week where we try to go out and do some stuff and come back and feel good about ourselves and go on about our lives and say, we'll do this again next year. Um, this is supposed to serve as a catalyst uh, for many of us uh, to be involved in these types of ministries all year long. We believe that as a church, um, that God has placed us here to bless our city, to be a blessing to all dimensions of our city. That is not something we simply do from the stage. In fact, um, in many ways, uh, what we do from the stage here, as far as our community is concerned, is just not that effective. Um, my role is to encourage you and to equip you and to bless you so that you can go out and be a blessing to them in the community where they live. Uh, and that's what happened this week as a catalyst for many of you that got involved uh, being out there doing that. I, guys, I'll just tell you this. I was so encouraged this week um, because I told you this is supposed to be a catalyst. But what I discovered um, was that this week was not a catalyst for many of you. It was kind of a harvesting for many of you um, in that I got to see how you have been involved. I got uh, to be a part of just some ministries that um, are led by members of our church that really are um, impacting the, the homeless and the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, the high school dropout, the at-risk at -risk kid. And I was just so very encouraged um, by, by what I saw. One of our, our, our members that I got to spend some time with, um, I, in fact, told me. I didn't get his permission to share this story, but I don't think he'd mind. And, uh, plus, I think he's at a different campus anyway. Um, but he told me, he said, I said, well, how'd you get involved doing this? He, he ministers to, um, to Nepalese refugees as they, they, they move into Raleigh-Durham. And he said, he said, well, he said, to be honest with you, he was Haggai chapter 1. And I, you know, I'm trying to race him through because I'm the pastor and I'm supposed to know all the Bible. And I'm like, Haggai chapter What's in Haggai chapter 1? He said, he said, Haggai chapter 1 where it says that, that, that how could you live in houses that are decorated with all the latest luxuries when my house lies in ruins? He said, for me, God's house is the lives of these Nepalese refugees. He said, I was sitting at home every night watching SportsCenter and Bravo TV for three and a half hours every night. And he said, I just didn't want to stand before Jesus and have that be the account of my life. He said, so for a while back, he said, I got involved. I still, you know, manage this, this company. And he said, I'm still involved 50, 60 hours a week with that. He said, but I'm also yielding my time to bless and serve um, this. And he said, it's just made the biggest difference in the life of my wife and I. Um, I'm so very encouraged by that. And I hope that for those of you that are not meaningfully involved um, in some way, it's not all the same. Some of you is going to be at your job itself. Um, but I hope that, that this just serves as a reminder to you. Um, because what I preach in here is so much more effective when it is demonstrated out in the community by the way that you live. The generosity of Christ that we preach with our mouths ought to be matched by a generosity of lifestyle that you live in our community. Uh, and so that's what this week is all about. And I just want to say thank you at all of our campuses. In fact, if we would, um, for, I know that I don't want you to clap for yourselves, but I want you to, 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 to appreciate what God has done here in the $50,000 and 6,500 man hours and 15, 14, 1,500 volunteers that we put onto the streets this past week. Would you put your hands together and let's thank God for what we saw. All right, uh, if you have your Bibles, now is the time that you would want to pull them out. We are in a series called Homewreckers, uh, which is a series where we're looking at some of the things that uh, destroy our relationships and corrode our homes, uh, and so that's what we've been looking at these past several weeks. I read a really disturbing article this week 
um, that I, I think will set up uh, the, what we're going to talk about today. It was an article about, of all things, the Brady Bunch. Um, how many of you watched that as a kid? Uh, raise your hand. All right, so most of you are familiar with that. Uh, it's a show about an innocent little American family in the 1970s, a very lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, Maureen McCormick, uh, who played Marsha on the show, released a book not too long ago revealing what was happening behind the scenes with the Brady Bunch. Some of you are familiar with this, but for those of you that are not, it is rather disturbing. Turns out that Cindy's lisp and Greg's butterfly collar were the least of their worries. Uh, she reveals um, trading on, personally, uh, trading um, sex for, for drugs, reveals that the guy who played Greg, her older brother, simultaneously while the show was going on was having an affair with both her and Florence Henderson, who played the mom, and that the dad, Mike, was gay plus a lot of other things that never made it into the plot line of the Brady Bunch. In fact, you imagine some of that working into the plot line. Like last week, Jan has a bloody nose because uh, she got hit with a football. This week, Marsha has a bloody nose because of her coke habit. Uh, It just didn't really flow with the whole Brady Bunch motif. Um, But what the whole story that I'm reading, of course, it just screams Hollywood, right? But it reminds you that a lot of families are not what they seem on the surface, Marcia, in fact, Maureen McCormick says this in, her, in the book, says, quote, as a teenager, I had no idea that few people are everything they present to the outside world. And here I was, hiding the reality of my life behind the unreal perfection of Marcia Brady. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is not at all like the Brady Bunch. Sometimes people in the church are fake, that's true, but the Bible never is. When the Bible presents families, it presents them as they are, not like we would wish that they always were. Uh, You you read some of the stories of families, especially in the Old Testament. It's like watching a Jerry Springer show. Um, What that tells me is that there are families and there are marriages in here, in this church, that have issues. We've got a statement around here at the Summit Church that everybody's normal until you get to know them. Then when you get to know them, you realize that their families are as dysfunctional as, as, as many of yours were. Now, let me make sure I'm I'm clear on this. Some of you had great families, and you come from great families, and you have a great family now. I am not trying to imply that behind every family is some deep, dark secret. My mom and dad were faithful to each other for uh, our entire lives, and they still are. They never abused us. They loved us. They served us. I grew up in a great home. Regardless, however, everybody's family, everybody's family looks a little different on the outside than it does on the inside. Isn't that true? You can say amen right there. Everybody's family looks a little bit different on the outside. The little smile that you got in your face, everything perfect, everything looks good. You got your Bible with, you know, with, with the precious moments you know, that are scattered throughout there. That is what it is on the outside. But some of you, five minutes before you walked onto this church campus, in the car, things did not look nearly that neat and that put together. Did it? It is in our families that our sin and our selfishness becomes the clearest. Uh, it is certainly that way in mine. Uh, you want to see me at my least sanctified, just follow me around the house for a while, right? So what I'm telling you is that regardless of how great your family was, if you're ever going to survive, you're going to have to learn how to deal with hurt and how to deal with disappointment. Listen, there are two ways to have a great family, two ways. One is you can all be perfect all the time. The other is that you can learn to show grace. Now, the first one's not really an option, okay? So wake up. It's not the Brady Bunch, The first one is not an option, so I want to explore the second one with you. That is what it looks like to have a gospel-centered, grace-saturated marriage and family. For many of you, the deadest part of your heart right now, 
goes back to some family hurt that is wrecking your life. It might be hurt that, that, that came from your parents. It might be hurt that comes from a spouse, maybe an ex-spouse, maybe, maybe a, a sibling. I don't know where it comes from, but it's, it's something inside you. Proverbs 14, 30 says it this way. A sound heart is life to the body, but bitterness is rottenness to the bones. That, 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 that is a Hebrew metaphor, meaning all the way down to the core of who you are, there is a rottenness that has that is just affected everything. That means it affects relationships that have nothing to do with the hurt. That means that this hurt that you carried from some point in your life, this unforgiveness, now affects every part of you. Your job, how you see yourself, how you see your kids, how you see other people. The way the New Testament says it, basically the same verse just put into different words. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God or nobody lives up to it or grasps it or embraces it. See that no bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. In other words, that place of bitterness becomes something that defiles you, your children, your relationships, all of your life. Some hurt in the past. Again, I don't know where it comes from, but it's an open cancer sore that is seeping poison into your whole life. I agree with one marriage counselor I read this week who said that the enemy's greatest foothold in many of us is one that none of us, that, that many of us don't even realize is there. It's a place of bitterness and unforgiveness in our lives. In fact, after having dealt with skeptical people now for many years in my ministry, I'll tell you that for many of you, your skepticism has less to do with intellectual problems and more to do with some area of hurt and, and, and unforgiveness that comes from somewhere in your past. Well, by God's grace, listen, if you will open your heart and you will ask the Holy Spirit to help you, by God's grace, it ends today. Because God doesn't want you to be trapped in a prison of bitterness. That is a homewrecker, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bible, is where we're going to be focusing today. I was trying to think of what passage really that would get at the heart of this one, and uh, this is the passage that I just consider to be absolutely foundational to knowing how to get along in relationships. So we're going to look at it, and we'll walk you through it, show you different things on it, then try to, try to show you how it applies to you specifically. Romans chapter 12, verse 17, here's how Paul begins. Repay no one evil for evil when somebody hurts you and you hurt him back that's what you're doing you're repaying evil you're giving them evil for their evil they smack you you smack them back now people with different personality types do this in different ways some of you have more of an aggressive personality type which means you're more of a you're more of a yeller right anybody anybody like that or grew up in a family like that you yelled at each other you threw things you hit you smacked okay then there are others of you that have more of a passive personality type and you don't actually do it that way. You're more of the kind that you take wounds in and you just kind of withdraw. On the surface, it kind of looks like patience, but it's actually not patience at all. Because what you're doing is you're just absorbing the hurt and this rage is kind of boiling in you. You slowly turn the fountain of love off for your spouse until there's nothing left because they disappointed you. These kind of people, again, they look patient on the surface, but they just take it in and take it in and take it in until they hit a limit and they just explode, right? They, all of a sudden, they, they leave the marriage. They have an affair. They go postal and shove their spouse into a wood chipper one night. Right? Th th these are passive people. It's just all of a sudden. So you got aggressive people, people who fight. Then you got passive people, people who flee. And a lot of us are kind of a mixture of the two. Like, like me, I'm kind of a, a smack and run guy. You know, a little bit of passive, a little bit of aggressive. Um, now, actually, you call these people passive aggressive. And this person responds just not by attacking frontally, it's a lot more subtle. 
you go cold on the person, right? That's how you pay them back is with silence. You think about it, this is what the father did to the son when he punished him for our sin. It's a form of anger and retribution. God turned his face away. That's what you do to your spouse. That's what you do to this person that's hurt you. You go cold on them. You're like, you're not worthy of my relationship. You withhold sex from them. That's another one. Withhold sex. You don't deserve I'm going to give you a chance to devote yourself to prayer and fasting like J.D. talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 7. You go cold on them. Maybe it's crying. It looks like hurt, but it's not hurt. It's actually a way to pay him back. John Piper says it this way. He says, personalities differ. Your retribution may take the form of tears that look like hurt, but the heart has learned that this may be the only way to hurt back. It might come out of silence because we've resolved not to fight. It might show up in picky criticism or relentless correction. It may strike out at persons who have nothing to do with its origin. And it feels warranted by its actions, by how wrongly it has been treated. Paul says, repay nobody evil for evil. We're going to get too wide how in a minute. But verse 18, if it's possible, he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here's another thing I love about the Bible. It's just very practical. It recognizes that it's not always possible to live peaceably with everybody. And there's a time you've got to withdraw yourself and remove yourself from the situation. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but let's keep going. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, in your heart, there is this sense when something has been done that is unjust, there's a little tuning for it that gets rung in your heart that lets you know that the balance in the universe is off, and that something needs to be repaid. It's like, a, it, it, it's like the sense that you've got that the guilty must pay, the wrong must be righted. Y'all, that is God-given. That is a God-given impulse that you have. He put it in you. It's why we enjoy revenge movies so much. It's why everybody's so fulfilled at the last Harry Potter. It's why 24 was so popular, right? Because Jack Bauer's paying back the world for all the bad things they've done, right? It, it, it's a God-given impulse. Paul says, listen, that for the believer... You don't have to avenge yourselves because you can rest assured that justice will be done by God. The person who has done the wrong will either have their sin paid for by Christ on the cross, like yours was, or they will suffer for it themselves in hell. Either way, vengeance will be served to the fullest extent, and that means that you have the ability to forgive. That is huge in the ability to forgive. Because any amount of forgiveness that does not include a sense of justice will be a hollow forgiveness and one that won't last. Miroslav Volf, he was a Croatian that lived through the Serbian genocide. Um, he's a believer. Says, he, says, he says, you know, a lot of times I hear people say that if you believe in a God of justice, then you become very hateful and judgmental and violent yourself. He said, anybody who says that is an academic or a Hollywood liberal who's never actually lived through injustice. He says, when you have suffered injustice like a child being killed or, 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 or watching your parents drug out and be slaughtered, he said, anybody who's lived through that level of hurt knows that the only way that you can deal with the rage and the hatred that dominates your heart is the belief that one day the God of the universe will right all wrongs. He said, it is only when I believe that vengeance belonged to God that I developed in my Heart, the capacity to forgive and to love because only the sense that God would get justice took away the hatred and rage from my heart. He said, my love for the Serbian people began to grow when I embraced the God who's, who, to whom vengeance belongs. That's what Paul is giving you there. Verse 20, to the contrary, to the contrary, 
If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, one of my favorite phrases, you will heap burning coals on his head. We'll come back to that. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the heart of the passage right there, verse 21. Some of you need to memorize that. Do not repay evil for evil. Repay good for evil. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. All right. When we are harmed or we're hurt, our natural response is to harm back, to return evil for evil. There are several motivations for this. I've already given you the sense of, well, the first one, the sense of justice. We feel like that the balance of the universe is off, and we feel right nigh unto deity when we are righting that wrong. A lot of times it's hatred. Right? I want to show you because I hate you for how you hurt me, and I want to make you suffer for how you made me suffer. Sometimes it's a sense of self-protection. I've taken, been taken advantage of, so now I've got to take a shot at you. Sometimes it's a sense that this is how we'll change them. They're never going to learn if we don't make them pay. This, listen, this passage overturns every single one of those. Every single one of those. It teaches you two revolutionary things about grace that I want you to write down here. Two revolutionary things about grace. By the way, a lot of times I hear people say that all religions basically teach the same thing. You know, interestingly, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, which in my opinion is his best book, The Abolition of Man made a statement. He said, when it comes to most ethical issues, it is indeed true that most world religions teach the same things about stealing, about murder, about adultery. He said, there's a lot of uniformity there. He says, but on this one right here, this passage we're looking at, this truth I'm about to teach you, he said the New Testament teaching stands in a class all by itself. No other religion in the world teaches you what I'm about to teach you from this passage. Here is number one. Grace absorbs evil and gives good. Grace absorbs evil and gives good. You think about it this way. You borrow my car for the weekend. And for whatever reason, I lose my mind and I let you borrow it, okay? So I let you borrow my car, you take it out and you wreck it. You don't have insurance. So you come back to me and you're like, J.D., I'm so sorry, I wrecked your car. How, how did it happen? I was playing Angry Birds, I was driving down the interstate, and I just lost control and I wrecked it. All right now, at that point I have a choice, correct? Right, I can make you pay. I can say, well, you're gonna pay every cent of damage to this. Or I can forgive you. Again, if I lose my mind, I, I forgive you. Now, if I forgive you for wrecking my car, think about it, what have I just agreed to do? If I'm gonna drive that car, I just agreed to pay for it myself. The damage, my forgiveness of you doesn't make the damage just go away. Oh, I forgive you, bing, it just pops back up. You know, that's not what happens. If I forgive you, then I am agreeing to pay the damage for your mistake or for your sin against me. I'm agreeing to pay it myself. In the same way, listen, when you sin against me and you wound me emotionally, I have a choice, the same choice. I can make you suffer in return and take vengeance on you, or I can refuse to take vengeance and give you love, and then I suffer alone. Your sin costs me, but not you. I, not you, bear the effects of your sin. You see, no one who has been deeply wronged just forgives. Nobody who has been deeply wronged ever just forgives. Grace always involves suffering. If you forgive, you are agreeing to absorb the wrong for their, re their action towards you and not give retribution in response. This is, of course, what Jesus did for us. He absorbed the effects of our sin and released us from the liability of punishment. Jesus didn't just forgive us. He absorbed into his body the effects of our sin. 
Again, nobody who has really been deeply wronged ever just forgives. Tim Keller says it like this, there is never forgiveness without suffering, nails, thorns, sweat, and blood. Never. You see, the myth about forgiveness is that you just forgive and forget. When you've really been hurt, that is almost impossible. Insane people forget. God never forgets. He never forgives and forgets. God suffered our sin and put it away by choice. Every time God thinks about it, he chooses to see it resolved in Jesus. You have to make that same choice. When they have wronged you, you have to choose whether you are going to give retribution or whether you believe their sin was put away forever in Jesus or will be vindicated in hell. I learned a definition of grace when I was a kid that I've never forgotten because I think it's just dead on. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God did not just forgive me. He didn't just forgive you. He gave you his riches but at Christ's expense, which is yet another dumb Christian bumper sticker. Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. Christians are not perfect. That is true, but they're not just forgiven. God did not just wave his hand and forgive us. He absorbed into himself the expense of our sin so that he could lavish upon us the riches of Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace absorbs evil and gives good like Jesus did. Here's number two. Grace overcomes evil. Second revolutionary truth from this passage. Grace overcomes evil. Paul says that in giving good, you actually overcome evil. I love the word overcome. It's a war term. It means literally to conquer or to wrestle to the ground. You see verse 20? It says, by repaying good for evil, you will heap burning coals on their head. I love that phrase because on the surface, you're like, well, that's exactly what I wanted to do in the first place. I wanted to heap burning coals on their head. Now we're talking. Paul is not talking about heaping burning coals on their head to hurt them. That would be against the entire spirit of that passage, wouldn't it? I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. Paul would be like, yeah, forgive them, and then he burning coals on their head. So as you watch their flesh melt off their scalp, you will have this sense of, no, it's not what he's talking about. <laughs> Heaping burning coals on their head is not done to hurt them. It's done to wake them up. That's the whole image there. If I'm in bed and I'm asleep and you throw either really hot or really cold water on me, either one has the same effect. It wakes me up. He says your kindness to them, your repaying good for their evil actually wakes them up out of the slumber of their stupidity and their selfishness that's what jesus did for us is it not he gave us kindness and that woke us up there is another deeply ingrained myth in us that the way we change people is by repaying them evil for evil it's like i explained to you last week that is just not true repaying evil doesn't overcome evil it only continues it both in them and in you one of my favorite stories, you know, I, I think illustrating this, I, if you've been around our church, I've told it before, but it just, it, it encapsulates it, I think, beautifully. Um, true story uh, that I heard about a, um, a, a, a husband and wife. Um, wife had just gotten a brand new shirt, a brand new blouse she was really excited about. And so on a Saturday, she was supposed to go out with one of her girlfriends shopping, and she was excited because she got a chance to wear this new shirt, so she puts it on. It's one of those ones with a zipper in the back that, you know, she can't zip up herself, so she asked her husband to please zip it up. Well, he grabs it and, you know, feels a little playful, a little flirtatious. He zips it up, but then he zips it back down. He goes, zip, 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 back, breaks the zipper. Brand new, splat, brand, new, brand new blouse, totally ruined. She can't, she can't wear it, at least she gets the zipper fixed. She's ticked off. She takes off her shirt, goes in there, gets another one, leaves with her girlfriend, comes back about four hours later. 
gets out of her girlfriend's car, walks down the driveway. There's her husband laying underneath their car working on it. She just sees his legs sticking out. She's like, huh, I'll pay him back. Goes over, grabs a zipper on his pants, zip, 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 back, back and forth like that. Feels this smug sense of satisfaction. Walks in the house. There's her husband. <laughs> standing right there in the kitchen. She's like, oh. you know what? He's like, yeah, our neighbor's working on our car. What are, you, what, what are you talking about? She runs out there. He's knocked out cold. Why? Because what do you do as a guy when you're, you know, somewhere and somebody grabs your zipper and you can't even see them and then they're messing around. He got sat straight up under the car. Bam, knocks himself out. Repaying evil for evil never works out well. Not for you, not for the person that you're repaying evil to. It doesn't. Showing grace overcomes evil. Again, how did God change you? Did he change you by repaying you for your sin? No, he changed, you by sh- changed your heart by showing you grace. By showing you grace, get this, he overcame evil in you. He changed your heart and woke you up. He dumped hot coals of mercy on your head by dying for your sin. So you overcome evil in somebody and in yourself by showing grace. You see, when you have hatred in your heart for somebody, evil's growing in you. It's like one of those rings in the Lord of the Rings. Just, it, it, it corrupts your whole being. That's what those first two verses we looked at were showing you. Proverbs 14, 30, it's rotting your bones. Hebrews 12, 15, it's defiling your whole body. I read a book a couple of years ago called The Bishop of Rwanda, written by a guy named John Rusihana, who, who, who lived through, he was, uh, he, he was a Tutsi who had been persecuted by the Hutus and watched several members of his family die. He said one of the worst lies that has ever crawled out of hell is the lie that you have to wait until somebody's truly sorry for their sin before you forgive them. He said because forgiveness has less to do with that person and more to do with you and God. He said, you see, regardless of that other person's reaction, when you possess bitterness in your heart, it will eat away at your heart like a cancer until it has destroyed all of you. He said, and until you get to a place where you can forgive irrespective of their reaction to you, you are still trapped in a prison of bitterness Forgiveness has more to do with you and God than it does you and them. Some of you this morning are holding yourself in a prison of bitterness. Lamentations 3.22, a promise to every believer, says that God's mercies are new every morning. But you live in a prison of the past. You will not embrace those mercies. Romans 8.28 tells you that your father is working all things, even the bad things, for good in your life. But you won't believe that. You won't embrace that. You feel like you want to go back and get vengeance and you want to to hold yourself in the prison of this past, and you are thereby forfeiting the mercy and the grace and the blessing that God has for you now. Get out of the prison of past bitterness and into the promises of future blessing. Because God has a way of overcoming even the worst things in your life. So let me summarize these verses. Christians don't respond to evil aggressively. They don't respond passively. They don't even respond passive-aggressively. Christians respond to evil, get this, with aggressive grace. That's what I want you to write down. Aggressive grace. Not passive, not aggressive, not passive-aggressive, aggressively graceful. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to deal with a couple, two or three objections that I've heard you thinking. Okay, I can hear it going on in your mind. I heard three objections. I'm going to answer all of them. And then I'm going to give you a handful of steps to show you how to apply this on a day-to-day basis. All right, so here we go. Three objections. Number one. If I forgive, you say, who's going to take care of me? Who's going to take up my cause? 
Who's going to nurse my wounds? Short answer, God will. You're going to have to learn to believe in God's sovereignty even in your pain. A lot of places I could go in the Bible to prove this, but perhaps the most obvious is a story that many of you are familiar with if you grew up in church, the story of Joseph. If you do not know the story because you did not grow up in church, basically the gist is this. Joseph is a guy who suffers about as much wrong in his family as you could consider or you could ever, ever think about happening. He's betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery to foreigners when he's a teenager. He disappears off the map. He goes, he finally pulls himself out of this slavery only to be wrongly accused by a woman who accused him of the very thing she was trying to do. He ends up in prison. He is neglected. He is forgotten about. He is treated unjustly. Make a long story short, and if you're unfamiliar with the story, this is like, what? Um, he ends up as the second in command in Egypt somehow. If you've never read the story, go back and read it. It's one of the most fascinating stories in human history. Ends up as the second in command in Egypt when, lo and behold, in his elder years, into his presence show up his brothers that had been the ones who sold him into slavery. He looks at them. He sees them. He sees they're in a place where he can save their lives. And rather than taking vengeance on them, he supplies them with love. He repays them with good. He gives them what they need to stay alive. When they realize who he is and realize what he has done, they say, why would you do this? Why would you not take vengeance on us? And he gives that verse that is perhaps one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Genesis 50, 20. Here's why, Genesis 50, 20. Because you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You had a bad plan for me, but God had a greater plan and God was working even in your bad plan for his greater plan because God always trumps the plans of humans. This is why I frequently bring up the cross. Right? If there were ever a time, if there were ever a time when it looked like God was out of control, if there were ever a time when it looked like injustice was winning, it would have been at the cross, would it not? Of course, from this side of the cross, we see that there was never a time when God was more at work when God was more at work redemptively turning our bad plans into his greatest triumph. What if, see, listen, what if? What if the cross was supposed to give you a picture of what God was doing in your darkest hour of injustice? What if in the darkest hour of your life, what if in the darkest hour of your marriage, God was actually working for good? I'm not saying that God was somehow in the injustice as if he was doing it to you. Nor am I saying that the other person is released from the wrong of what they have done. What I'm saying is what if God, as he was in Jesus, is working in your darkest hour, weaving it all for a greater plan? Yes, that person meant evil to you, but what if God meant it for good? Who's going to take up your cause? God will. Objection number two. If I'm being hurt, are you telling me just to get walked on? You tell me just to... To, to roll over and take it, to, to be taken advantage of? Not at all. I mean, first of all, part of overcoming evil is confronting somebody in their sin. Scripture talks a lot about this. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. Galatians 6.1 says that if you see somebody overtaken in a fault, you ought to go to them humbly and meekly and restore them. Luke 17 tells you if a brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This is not confronting them like yelling at them. You're not verbally whipping them. It means lovingly confronting them for their sake, which means you do so without the slightest drop of malice or, or ill will or hatred. Jesus had a great way of talking about this. He usually did on, on stuff like this, but especially this. He, he called it turning the other cheek. 
which is something I've explained to you before, but because people so misunderstand this, let me take an opportunity to do it again. Jesus said that when somebody, somebody smacks your cheek, you ought to turn the other cheek. Now, people are like, what does that mean? Does that mean like, you know, somebody hits you and you fall down and you pull yourself back up and you're like, hit me again, I'm still standing. You knock it down and just repeat this prop, and that's not at all what he was saying. First of all, somebody that is striking your cheek is not trying to kill you, right? I mean, because I've talked to a lot of martial arts experts, and no one has ever told me that if you really want to kill somebody, go for their cheek. That's the spot. That's the spot where you really do some, no. The cheek in Jewish metaphor, the cheek was the metaphor of relationship. That's why they kissed each other on the cheek when they saw each other. Relationship. So when somebody smacks your cheek, they're attacking the relationship. And Jesus said that when the relationship is attacked, you turn the other cheek, which means you reoffer the relationship. You see, when they smack your cheek, you've got a set of choices. One, you can smack their cheek back. That's aggressive. You can turn to them the same cheek, which is passive. You stand back like, until finally you go postal on, right? The other option, the Jesus option, is that you turn the other cheek, which means you absorb the blow, you confront them about the wrong, and then you reoffer the relationship to them. This was most fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus absorbed the blow, but then he offered reconciliation. He returned the face of God's presence toward us and said, if you repent, then you and I can be in relationship. It's not loving to fail to confront somebody in their sin. When you see them doing something that is destroying them or their relationships with you, with other people, and you say nothing to them, that is not loving. A lot of times we don't say anything to people and we feel like we're being loving, we're being patient. We are not. All we're doing is being a coward. You feel like, well, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to be a martyr. You're not being a martyr. You're being a coward. Tim Keller says this, ultimately, any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is really not love. It's a selfish desire to be loved. Because I'm not confronting you because I'm afraid that in confronting you, you're going to be mad at me. And I don't want to lose the the face of my relationship with you, so I'm just not going to say anything to you. I'm going to let you continue on your sin even though I know it's destroying you. That is not loving. That is cowardly. So quit calling that a Christian virtue because it's not. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do to somebody is to confront them about their sin. Now the other thing I'll say here on this point is that this passage recognizes there's a time when you have to remove yourself from a situation. Because it's not possible to live peaceably with somebody. Remember Romans 12, 18 we looked at? Romans 12, 18 which said if it's possible to live peaceably with all people. Paul is conceding it's not always possible. You know what comes up right after Romans 12? Romans 13. Oh, yeah? What's in Romans 13? Paul's instructions about the government. In our Bible, there's a break between Romans 12 and 13. In Paul's writing, there was no break. He's talking about the government having the right to put people in prison and the right to bear the sword because Paul recognizes there is a time when this is an issue that's beyond just your forgiveness. This is a matter where somebody needs to go to jail. And what he's saying is that your forgiveness of them does not include the fact that you are keeping yourself in harm's way or you are allowing people to continue on in, in injustice when they ought to be out of the situation in prison or you ought to be out of the house. This would be the case, for example, in abuse, alcoholism, people constantly taking advantage of you. Now, and I'm talking about that with business. Listen, I want to be very careful here because I don't want some of you to now use this as an excuse to break relationships or leave your marriage. Do not confuse wounded feelings with lasting damage. There's a difference between you're insensitive and I'm being abused. There's a big difference in those. Proverbs 19, 11, 
A man's wisdom gives him patience. It's his glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes you just need to overlook the offense. Sometimes you just need to overlook it. I'm not talking about confronting over everything. I'm not talking about leaving the relationship over everything. It's wisdom, it's glory to know when to, to just to overlook it. In the words of that great theologian, Kenny Rogers, the secret to surviving is knowing when, come on, when to walk away, and knowing, or knowing, knowing what to throw away and knowing what to keep. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run. Wisdom is knowing what goes in what category. You're like, well, tell me what goes in what category. I know that's what you want. I know you want a little list so that you can go down and check it off and then hit the bottom and, 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 and go bullets. That's not what I'm going to do. I could give you guidelines about harming you, about a person's hardness of heart. I could do all that. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to wisdom. And guess what? You're not in a place to make that kind of wise choice because your emotions are too involved, which is why you ought to be in a small group and be involved in a church because that's what God's gift is to you for other people to speak wisdom into your situation. I'm not talking about a group of girls, your girlfriends, that you gossip with at Barnes & Noble about how bad you're, I'm not talking about that level of friends, I'm talking about godly friends who can look at a situation and help give wisdom into a situation about what you ought to be doing. Objection number three, God, well, should we never let somebody bear the consequences for their sin? No. Sometimes you let people suffer the penalty for their sin. Proverbs 19 goes on to say a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty if you rescue him you're just gonna have to do it again. Which means sometimes you let people suffer the consequences. Y'all, I do this with my kids. Just because I forgive them doesn't mean that they don't ever face the consequences for their sin. Now again, it takes wisdom to do this. All right, so there's your three objections. So here's what I wanna do now. I wanna give you some very practical ways that you can apply this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you, get this, 11 practical things you need to do, but don't freak out, because they're real quick. These are just, I mean, seriously, these are like drive-bys. So we're not going to be here for the next hour, but I want you to write these down. Some of you need to write these down, and you need to put them on the dashboard of your car. Because you, some of you will need these five times on the drive home, okay? So I want you to write these 11 things down, and I want you to think about it. All right, I'm just going to do a drive-by on most of them. Number one, when it's possible, you need to overlook the offense. That was Proverbs 19.11. The analogy I'd give you with this is, is, is think about it like playing tennis. You're playing tennis with somebody and you're hitting these nice little, you know, kind of volleys back and forth over the net. And then all of a sudden somebody hits one and puts just a little bit of English on it, right? So you're like, mm. so you hit it back with a little bit of English on it. And then it gets, it gets harder and it gets more direct. And then, you know, a few minutes later, you're this far from each other at the net, just killing it with that tennis racket. There's a way to never get in that cycle. And that is you just don't return the first volley. They put a little bit of English on it, you just step back and let it go on by. Then you don't hit it back harder, and they don't hit it back harder, and then you stay out of the situation. Sometimes the glory of, of being a believer is you just let it go. I wish that I lived this in my marriage. It would be so much better. It's not, it's not often that I am just directly hypocritical, but I clearly am on this point. I, I, I need to, where am I? I'm back there, I'm on the screen. You just let it go, man. Let it go. <laughs> you don't need to confront every wrong. You don't always have to respond. You can just let it go and absorb it and move on. Number two, forgive in advance. Forgive in advance. Matthew, Mark 11, Mark 11, 25 says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against somebody, forgive him. 
In other words, when you're in prayer, even before you've actually gone to confront the person, you've already forgiven them in their hearts. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, every time I repent, forgive him, then Jesus goes on to say 70 times seven. Well, what do you, people hear that and they're like, oh, well, that's 490. Um, I'm going to keep a scorecard of 491. I'm going to go Old Testament on you. <laughs> not what he's meaning. He's not telling you to keep a scorecard. Seven in the, in the Bible is the number of perfection, completion. So seven times 70 means ultimate completion or forever. It means there's never a time when you have not already extended forgiveness even before they've asked for it. You resolve in your heart to forgive in advance regardless of their repentance on the issue because repentance has more to do with you and God than it does you and them. Number three, take time. Take time. This might be one of the most practical. You're wondering how you should respond to somebody who's wronged you. Are you going to make the right decision in the moment of anger? Easy question. No. How many times has this got to happen to you before you learn? In the middle of an argument and you just, you're, 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 you're out of body listening to the words come out of your mouth like a flock of birds. You know, it flops out of your mouth. <laughs> come back. I don't want to say that. How many times have you been in a situation where you're like, if I had just not spoken in anger, my life would be so much better. Remember that scene on Seinfeld where George Costanza blows up at his boss and he's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you want to go back, but you can't get it back. Uh, one of our pastors, um, I won't tell you his initials, but his name is Brad O'Brien. Um, one of our pastors, um, uh, several years ago, uh, he, 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 there was this guy that really made him mad. Um, and Brad, I actually think, had a right to be pretty ticked off. And so Brad, because I know about the situation, forwards me this guy's email. The guy had written this royal blue font that just looked ridiculous. And he forwards me this thing, and because and it, it's, it's got like, like for, if you have email, don't put flowers and decoration. This guy, it, it was just all this decor. And, and he sent it to me and said, this guy is using royal blue and all this decor to cover up the fact, I think, that he's, and he said, full of crap to me. He didn't forward it to me. He replied to the guy. Um, and so he replied and sent that response back to the guy. So somebody comes to my office and says, you need to go talk to Brad. I'm like, why? They're like, so I walk in his office. Brad is laid out on the floor, just laid there, because he's like, I have ruined the church. <laughs> it never works out well for you to respond in anger. Uh, you know, I, I, over the years, I've told you I have this little rule about, I call it the 24-hour rule about not responding to emails that make me mad within about 24 hours. Because I almost always, I, sometimes I do respond, but then I just don't send it. Just kind of leave it, because I almost always rewrite it when I'm not angry, and it comes out much better. 24, I usually do that. Sometimes, you know, I'll go ahead and let it fly, but I usually regret it. I usually regret it. Take time. Take time. Go in a room and yell, serenity now, or whatever it takes, and then just walk away. Number four, ask God what he is teaching you in the situation. Ask God what he's teaching you during that time that you take, you ought to pray and say, God, what are you trying to teach me through this painful situation? And realize that God can and does, listen, God can and does speak through very flawed people to you. That's another myth, is that God only speaks in my life through people who are perfect. He doesn't speak through people who are perfect. He speaks through people who are screwed up like you are. He speaks through donkeys. Right? He can do what he needs to do, and sometimes he uses very flawed people who are very much in the wrong to accomplish a good purpose in you. So ask God what he's teaching you in this situation. Number five, reflect on your own depravity. Reflect on your own depravity. 
Paul says, Galatians 6, if, if one of you is caught up in a fault, go to him with humility and meekness, realizing that you also are the kind to be tempted. This person is no different than you. Right? You have the same stuff in you. You have the same makeup. You're every bit as depraved as they are. And you reflect on your own depravity, and that makes you go with humility. Number six, rejoice in your own forgiveness. Rejoice in your own forgiveness because, see, being in Christ gives you the security to be able to forgive, and it also gives you the grace to want to forgive. When you're in Christ, forgiveness comes naturally, see, because there's a limit to how deeply somebody can hurt you. I said something last week that I think some of you misunderstood because I got a few emails about it, so let me clear it up. I told you, in Christ, you can give up all you have because in Christ, you have all that you need. In Christ, I can give up all that I have because in Christ, I have all that I need. And some of you said, well, does that mean that I just get taken advantage of and you take everything from me that I have? No, I'm not saying that at all. Listen, I'm just saying that when you're in Christ, there's a limit to how deep somebody can actually hurt you. Because see, your real wealth, your real significance, your real security, your real worth is in Christ. And they can't touch that. When you're in Christ, there's a limit to how deeply they can hurt you. Anyway, here's what I'd say. Listen, how well you understand the gospel, how much you get it is, un, is measured by how much pain you can endure and still have joy. How well you understand the gospel is measured by how much pain you can endure and still have joy. Some of you cannot endure a slighting by your spouse, you cannot endure insult, you cannot endure any pain because you don't really understand the gospel at all. Your joy is not in Christ, your joy is in something, and when it's threatened, that's why your joy evaporates. Your understanding of the gospel is measured by how much you can have joy, even in the midst of pain, because your joy is in Christ when you understand the gospel. And that's something that insult and pain can't touch or take away. Number seven, take the initiative. Take the initiative. There's one place in the Bible where it says that, that if you're the one who is wrong, you ought to go and ask for forgiveness. Then there's another place in the Bible that says if somebody has done wrong to you, you ought to go and ask for forgiveness. The astute reader will say, wait a minute, when do I not have the initiative? When is it their responsibility? And the answer is never. Never. The move always lies with you. When any relationship has cooled, listen, when any relationship has cooled or weakened in any way, it is always your move. Always. Doesn't matter who started it. When any relationship has weakened or cooled off in any way, it is always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. That's what the Bible says, if you're into that kind of thing. All right? And I am. Verse 8. Or not verse. These have not yet reached the level of Scripture. I realize that, okay? <laughs> Number 8. Apologize for your wrongdoing without qualification. Apologize for your wrongdoing without qualification. You ever ask, you ever do this, you ever ask for forgiveness that's kind of like a little forgiveness and a little bit like you're like, I'm sorry that I said that to you, but you are such an idiot, which is why I said that to you. And I'm going to ask for forgiveness here while giving you explanation over here. Listen, when you, listen. When you explain your wrongdoing, you're not asking for forgiveness, you're asking for understanding. And those are two totally different things. You ought to maybe give explanation at some other point and confront them, but that ought to be a separate conversation. You ought to just go and apologize for what you did wrong without qualification. Listen to me, some of you guys, 
Some of you men have never, never asked for forgiveness from your wife, truly. It's always been, yeah, I did this, but here's really what you did. You've been asking for explanation, not forgiveness, and you need to repent straight up, straight out, with irrespective of them, and say, I'm wrong, period. And your wrong does not excuse my wrong. Some of you men have never offered a real apology to your wives. Never, never, never. You've offered it to coworkers, but you've never offered a real apology to your wife. And that's where it ought to begin for you today. Number nine, confront where appropriate. Confront where appropriate. Number 10, forgive fully. Forgive fully. A guy named Ken Sandy gives, in a book called Peacemaking for Families, four promises of full forgiveness. Here they are. I will not think about this incident. I will not bring it up or use it against you. I will not talk to others about it. And I will not, dis- I will not allow it to stand between us or hinder our relationship. That's some of you like, I didn't get a chance to write those down. I, I understand that. You can forgive me. <laughs> but here's, here's what I would tell you. Every week, every week, on my blog, jdgray.com, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little link that says sermon transcript, and I put the full transcript of these sermons word for word, okay, with every notation, every citation, and all that stuff's in there, and you can access it every week if you want it, and you can follow up on what you missed, all right? That's a good thing to point out here. Number 11, repay with good. Repay with good. All right? Let me close by explaining this to you. When I was growing up, the tradition I grew up in had these marks that they said were true of you if you were really saved. They were things like, you know, if you really had been saved, first of all, if you were a girl, you, you started to wear culottes. You know, remember those in the long shorts? Uh, you started to wear culottes. You developed like an intense hatred for rock music um, and beer and cigarettes. You just started to hate those. And you cut your hair short if you were a guy. Uh, that was the marks of being, and you developed an insatiable thirst for Southern gospel music. Uh, that was the other one. Um, those were the marks of truly being born again. If you're really saved, this is what you do. You start to speak in Elizabethan, Bethian, or however, King James English. That was the other mark. Now, that's ridiculous. That's all ridiculous. Most of that's ridiculous. All right? But there is one definitive mark of somebody who has truly tasted the grace of God. One definitive mark. And that is people who have really tasted the grace of God develop an insane ability to forgive. And so for some of you, the question is, listen, your inability to forgive, that bitterness you harbor, is an indication that you've never really embraced. I don't mean you don't believe it. I don't mean you're not saved. But I mean you've never really been embraced by the grace of God. Because Jesus said those who are forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven much begin to forgive. So see, if forgiveness doesn't come as naturally to you, if, it's, if bitterness has just rooted itself in your heart, I've got to ask you this. Have you really ever comprehended what God has shown to you? You were guilty of a sin, of a rejection, of an authority, of a blasphemy of God, that the only way to cover it was either for you to suffer for it eternally in hell or Jesus to go through a bloody cross on your behalf and face the wrath of God for you. How could you possibly understand what God has forgiven you of and not naturally have a heart that feels compassion and forgiveness for other people because you recognize that they're depraved like you are and that you are a recipient of great grace. So you give great grace. Some of you don't need these 11 steps. You don't. You don't need to put these on your dashboard. 
Some of you just need to get your heart around the grace of God for you because then see the 11 steps will just start to come naturally to you. You need to behold your God. You need to behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. That we are not just made right with God. We are called children of God. We are his delight. And when you have been overwhelmed by the grace of God, see, then you begin to love. You begin to forgive. Those who are forgiven much love much, and they forgive much. The grace of God. And all of our campuses, why don't you bow your heads if you would with me. In just a minute, with all, at all of our campuses, our campus pastor is going to come, or our worship leader, worship pastor is going to come, he's going to lead us through a time of communion. The Lord's table, the bread and the cup. What a great way to end this meditation on Romans 12. Because what you're going to have is you're going to have a picture in your hands of God's riches at Christ's expense. God did not just forgive you. He didn't. He gave you these things you're about to hold in your hands, representing his blood and his body. This is what he gave so that you can be forgiven. I want you to partake of this if you're a believer through the lens now of others who have wronged you. And just like your forgiveness caused Christ, I want you to absorb the evil that has been done to you like Christ absorbed yours. And I want you to give your riches at your expense. If you're not a believer, we always tell you this is not for you, at least the ceremony is not, but there is something in this very important for you, and that is the offer of forgiveness. God has given himself to you, to all who will repent and believe. It's a gift. He has shed his blood, he has broken his body so that you could be forgiven, so that all who would repent and believe in Jesus would receive forgiveness full and free. If you have never received Jesus as Savior, then while others are taking these elements, you Open your heart and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that our eyes would be open to the greatness of your grace for us. We would be overwhelmed. We would worship in these moments. Forgiveness is the fruit of worship. To help us to worship and stand amazed in the presence Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love us, a sinner condemned unclean. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.